if you believe, as, as I do, that we should be able to reform the criminal justice system so that it's not biased and treats everybody fairly, I guess you can use a snappy slogan like defund the police, but you know you've lost a big audience the minute you say it, which makes it a lot less likely that you're actually going to get the changes you want done. But for the people you just saw, the real problem is that the rioting in some rare places is being stopped by police. And their aim is to fix that. They would like to eliminate all law enforcement for good. And then day after day, uh, you know, just seeing the police brutalize innocent people, beating people unconscious, arresting people for stepping off of a sidewalk, tackling people, just the tear gas, the rubber bullets, the sound munitions, the dogs. But then also wondering where are the elected officials who are paid to represent us right here? Because they could save us, like they could stop this from happening. Doesn't matter. The, the point here from the media, from the Democrats, is that the cops are always bad. The cops have to be stopped. The cops are a rampant fascist force out of control. And the only, undergirding so much of what Democrats talk about cops is this. They have this bifurcated view of cops. On the one hand, they will, they will pay homage to them the same way that, that Joe Biden paid homage to a police officer who was killed at the Capitol yesterday. And they'll do so in moving fashion. On the other hand, they will suggest that America's police are systemically racist. And it all depends on the circumstance. Uh, and there appear to be some divisions among Democrats about how to handle it. Your colleague, Karen Bass, running for mayor of Los Angeles, is trying to increase the police force yes. in L.A. Corey Bush, congresswoman from Missouri, is saying it's time to defund the police. He's sticking by that. You're the speaker. How do you think Democrats should address rising crime? Well, with all the respect in the world for Corey Bush, that is not the position of the Democratic Party. Is Barack Obama right? Is defund the police a slogan that turns voters away? I don't care. Um, I think it's a conversation that needs to be had. And what I would say is, I think the moment that we begin to um, ask politicians to account for and to opine on rhetoric of the activist community is the moment that we walk into real trouble. The call to defund the police is, I think, an abolitionist uh, demand. But it reflects only one aspect of uh, the process represented by uh, the demand. Defunding the police is not simply about withdrawing funding for law enforcement and doing nothing else. And it appears as if uh, this is uh, the, 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 the rather superficial understanding uh, that has caused um, Biden to move in the direction he's moving in. It's about shifting public funds to new services and and, and new institutions, uh, mental health counselors uh, who um, can respond to people who are in crisis without arms. Uh, it's about shifting funding to education, to housing, to recreation. Uh, all of these things help to create security and safety. So again, thank you, George Floyd, for sacrificing your life for justice, for being there to call out to your mom. How, how heartbreaking was that? Call out for your mom. I can't breathe. But because of you and because of thousands, millions of people around the world who came out for justice, your name will always be synonymous with justice.
just heard was several prominent American politicians, thought leaders, and also Ben Shapiro commenting on police and prison abolition. Hi, welcome to Designing Abolition. My name is Carolyn. And I'm Aaron. And we are so excited to be making this podcast episode together. Um, if you're a first time listener to my podcast, Getting Critical with Carolyn, welcome. And if you're a first time listener to Aaron's podcast, Black Brew, I'm going to go ahead and welcome you to their podcast as well. Um, (laughs) And so uh, before we get into the content, we want to just kind of establish who we are and why we're doing this. So Aaron, can you talk to us about your identity and your journey to becoming an abolitionist? Yeah. So I, just like Carolyn, I am currently a graduate student at the University of Maryland. I identify as a black queer, non-binary person, identify as a southerner, identify as a communist. All of those things are very important to my identity and very important to why I identify as an abolitionist. And my journey as an abolitionist kind of started with me just being aware of my own blackness and seeing the different kinds of police violence that was happening on social media and living in fear that one day I might also be a victim of police violence Mm -hmm. and also being in an instance with other people of color being pulled over and one of us suffering police violence. Oh God. Um, And eventually I was like, okay, this is a problem and I need to figure out like a way to like advocate for something different than police reform. So in the summer, around the summer of 2020, I began to start identifying as an abolitionist after reading a bunch of stuff, listening to Angela Davis talk. I spent that summer doing what I like to call political education, community of political education, because I spent hours recording hours worth of content on Snapchat where I was uh, teaching people about the difference between police reform and police abolition. And then in grad school, I started to read about CRT and I right now co-facilitate an abolitionist reading group, another form of community politi- political education. So that's my journey. That's great. And Thank you. I'm in that reading group. <laughs> um, so if you want to join, let us know. I'm sure Aaron will be happy to facilitate that for you. Um, yeah, so I am a cis, straight, white woman. Uh, I am also from the South. I grew up uh, in Texas for most of my life. Um, and now I live in Maryland. I'm a graduate student here. And um, I am, like I said, I am a white woman. And so my understanding and upbringing in the context of policing is very different from Aaron's. Um, so as a woman and as a fat person and as a person who has disabilities, although my disabilities might not necessarily be uh, apparent initially, I do have the the possibility of experiencing you know sexual violence at the hands of police that is a very real possibility but Mm -hmm. all of these factors of my identity also mean that I grew up culturally where the police were on my team the police were there to protect me the police were the good guys who were going to protect me from the bad guys and so my understanding of policing in prisons evolved a lot through college and through grad school So when I was in undergrad, I had to read um, Michelle Alexander's book, The New Jim Crow. And if you haven't read that, it's a really great entry point into these conversations. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, I read it and it's about the connections 
following through history from enslavement to our current carceral system. And, you know, little 19 year old me, it was like, why is nobody talking about this? Right. Like this is this is major. This is such a big deal. And like it's so unjust and it's harming so many people. Why isn't anyone talking about it? Well, it turns out a lot of people have been talking about it for a long time. It's just that those people don't necessarily look like me. And those opinions are not welcome in a lot of the spaces that I was occupying and feeling comfortable in through my upbringing. And so um, I got more and more into the literature and involved in the online spaces and meeting other people who uh, believe in abolition. And my thinking evolved a lot. And I, I definitely was on board with reform and all of that stuff through college. And I think once I started my master's is when I began to feel more comfortable with the identity of being an abolitionist. And um, then, you know, in my PhD, I met Aaron and several other abolitionists. <laughs> and, you know, we're, we're out here supporting each other, supporting our communities and doing things like this podcast to try to reach the public. Um, so with that said, we're gonna dive into a few definitions of terms that are gonna be key to the conversations that we're having in this podcast. So Aaron, why don't you get us started, please? Yeah, so as I said before, we're both graduate students, so we're taking a class right now that is a class on rhetoric and design and social justice. Shout out to English 776. Yeah. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> so we, I will define for you design rhetoric. We're defining design rhetoric as a method of analysis that allows us to think about the arguments inherent in the construction of built spaces and systems and those spaces of systems that we're talking about specifically are prisons and policing it is also a method of creation that allows us to respond to these arguments in ways that pursue justice and that just justice that we're talking about is abolition yeah absolutely um another term that is going to be really important to today's conversation is prison industrial complex PIC for short. Um, and so this is based on President Eisenhower's term military industrial complex. And so the PIC, like the MIC, military industrial complex, uh, consists of prisons and the industries connected to them. So while most prisons in the United States are not privately owned and operated, although private prison is a whole other problem, um, most, if not all, American prisons use carceral labor. To Carceral means taking place in a carceral space same route as incarcerated, uh, you know, just a space of detention. Um, so the most, if not all, American prisons are using this kind of prison carceral labor to produce products for various corporations and government services, like the stereotypical idea of, you know, incarcerated folks making license plates. Um, and companies that produce items that are used by prisoners, like beds, food, uniforms, all that kind of stuff, also form part of the PIC. And this connection between prisons and industry is complex and multifaceted, but the main outcome is that it's become extremely profitable to the very wealthy and to large corporations to incarcerate more Americans for longer sentences and to set them up for recidivism or uh, repeated uh, trips to prison after they've been released uh, so that they continue to produce free or nearly free labor that props up the U.S. economy. So another part of the PIC, that's a very port an important term to know, is policing. So policing is a practice originating from the foundation of America, chattel slavery. Mm -hmm. Policing as a job during the 17th century was primarily concerned with monitoring enslaved people and capturing runaway enslaved people. So it's been around for a very long time. It's nothing new. 
But as time naturally progressed, so did policing. Even though slavery had been, quote, abolished, the approaches used by slave patrollers simply transitioned to convict leasing and black codes and eventually became the current institution known as policing today in America. All of this is possible based on a loophole in the 13th Amendment of our Constitution. We define policing as an inherently violent act with the sole purpose of protecting property and whiteness. Ooh, say that one again. Property and whiteness. Yes, absolutely. Um, <laughs> it's just so good, you know. I mean, it's not good, but... I was like, whiteness is good. <laughs> no, I love whiteness. No, uh, I just mean it's a good definition. It's really strong. Um... And also with this reference to the 13th Amendment, there's actually a documentary on Netflix that's called 13th that you can watch if you want to get more contextual and historical information about this. But basically, the 13th Amendment to the Constitution abolishes, quote unquote, involuntary servitude, um, and except in cases of repayment for a crime. So what that means is that you can't enslave people unless they've committed a crime, and that is what is currently going on completely constitutionally, legally in our carceral system. And I think we can all agree that that is a major problem and has mm -hmm. very direct connections to enslavement. Um, so the next term that I want to define actually comes from um, design rhetoric, like we, like Aaron mentioned earlier, and that is wicked problem. So a wicked problem is a design concept that refers to a set of problems that is so complex and intertwined that it initially seems impossible to solve. Um, so I'm going to go into a metaphor here that Aaron finds nasty. Um, so they can just go ahead and plug their ears and it'll just be you and me for a minute, guys. <laughs> Aaron, give us some privacy. Um, so <laughs> um, a wicked problem is like a rat king. So a rat king is what happens when a bunch of rats in a little colony or community in the sewers are all running around on top of each other and their tails get entangled and they're all tied together and they can't get undone. They're all trying to run different directions to get away from each other and it just makes the knot tighter. It seems impossible to untangle a rat king and in the process of the untangling, you have to remain conscious of the possibility of getting bitten or scratched as the rats make their knot even tighter, right? Abolition trying to address a wicked problem isn't always going to be painless. There, it might cause some harm, might cause some damage, it might be scary, and some people might take advantage of the system, and that doesn't mean we shouldn't do it. Um, oftentimes, we approach wicked problems like the Rat King with a singular solution, rat poison. However, rat poison doesn't untangle the problem. It just gives you a bunch of dead rats and toxic waste in our collective groundwater. Right When we try to address a wicked problem like the... Uh, PIC with a singular solution, it doesn't help and it actually hurts all of us, even if it seems indirect. The PIC is the wicked problem we will address throughout this podcast. So, Aaron, why don't you go ahead? You can unplug your ears now and <laughs> give us a definition of abolition. Yeah. So, you're probably wondering what is abolition? So, we define abolition as the process of reimagining society without prisons. The movement has its roots in the abolition of enslavement, because slavery and policing and prisons are related. The word abolish connotes destruction. However, abolition is a creative process. The ab uh, abolition of enslavement involved the creation of a more equitable society that operated without slave labor and redefined what freedom looked like. 
When we look back on the original abolitionist movement, we think that we all would have been abolitionists because slavery is obviously morally repugnant. However, abolition was not a popular movement in its time. We maintain that the modern-day abolition movement will follow the same pattern. While it's not popular now, once prisons have been abolished, their obvious cruelty will make our descendants say, of course I would have been an abolitionist. No descendant of mine will speak like that. (laughs) While our current system is one of retribution focused on punishment, abolition allows us to imagine a completely different society built on principles of of restoration and transformation, treating the root causes of crime and giving people the space and resources they need for growth and change. Yeah, exactly. And so... Um, In this podcast, we're going to think about how abolition and design work together. And uh, we argue that design rhetoric allows us to answer wicked problems with innovative solutions that are equally as complex as the problem. Um, The beauty of design rhetoric is its embrace of the rhetorical imagination. A major contributing factor to abolition's current unpopularity is a lack of such radical collectivist imagination in our individualist neoliberal society. So because the PIC is such a central pillar of our society, it's difficult for us to imagine a society without it. Rather than replacing the PIC with either just nothing or with a singular alternative, however, design rhetoric combined with the rhetorical abolitionist imagination allows us to imagine completely new and abundant solutions to different facets of the wicked institution of the prison system. So our goal with this podcast is to illuminate abolitionist responses to common anti-abolition counter-arguments. So Aaron, why don't you get us started with our first set of arguments? Yeah, so first we're going to talk about restorative and transformative justice, just to kind of give you some possible alternatives in an abolitionist future. Before we talk about that, I want to talk about our current criminal justice system, which is a punitive system. That means that our solution to crime is punishment. This punishment is contradictory to our current narratives about what our prison systems claim to do, which is rehabilitate people so that they can serve their time and return as reformed functioning members of society. And while we say that people are serving their debt to society and we say that they're being reformed, that's actually not what's happening in prisons. What's actually happening in prisons is an abundant amount of sexual violence and physical abuse. Yeah. For example, when trans people are incarcerated, a lot of times they are put in, uh, they're incarcerated people with the gender that they do not identify as, Definitely. which results in even more violence for them. Mm-hmm. And then after being released, there are various barriers in America that prevent formerly incarcerated people from actually functioning in society as, quote, reform members. Mm-hmm. They can be denied housing. They can be denied jobs. Uh, Sometimes, depending on their crimes, their voting rights are restricted. And so not only do they have to face these kind of structural barriers, but there's also sociocultural kind of like just being someone known as, quote, an ex-con is enough to make people um, deny you your uh, rights. So they haven't really paid, even though they've, quote, paid their debt to society, they really haven't because it's not focused on rehabilitation right the debt never ends yeah what do you have to do to make up for it you know and you know their voting rights are often taken away and so that means that they don't get to have a political voice to change the system that has harmed them Mm -hmm. and that's not a coincidence Uh, that's done on purpose to keep people down and so uh, we're going to play you a quick soundbite from senator bernie sanders talking about 
um, our carceral system being broken and in need of reform. Mr. President, our criminal justice system is broken and we need major reforms in that system. I think there is no debate in this country that violent and dangerous people must be locked up and they must be kept in jail and away from society. I think nobody argues that. On the other hand, I would hope that there is also no debate that nonviolent people, people who have been convicted of relatively minor crimes, should not have their lives destroyed. Okay, after you've heard that, now we're going to play a soundbite, a counter-argument from Vox. I think most Americans believe that after you commit a crime and pay your debt to society, the punishment ends. You have the chance to rebuild your life and get a fresh start, but the reality is much harsher. We punish people with criminal records long after they've paid their debt to society, and we all suffer for it. Even simply being accused of a crime is just the beginning of perpetual punishment. A cycle of legalized discrimination, poverty, and reincarceration. A cycle kept in motion by 47,000 laws and regulations nationwide that restrict critical rights and opportunities. After contact with the criminal justice system, millions of Americans are denied employment and housing, denied college educations, excluded from public benefits, separated from their children, deported despite being legal residents, and deprived of the right to vote. These restrictions trap the poor and people of color in invisible cages that extend far beyond prison walls and criminal courts. Cages that lead to a lifetime of obstacles that undermine even the most earnest efforts at rehabilitation and redemption. So essentially what they're saying is that to uh, re rebuttal Bernie's opinion, the system is working exactly as it is designed to work. And that's precisely the problem. Because it's a system built on capitalism and white supremacy, it's designed with exploitation, financial gain, and also maintaining dominant power structures as its purpose. The cruelty, exploitation, oppression is the point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So why don't you talk to us about the abolitionist response to all of this? Yeah. So some responses to our current punitive system is to adopt uh, some different approaches such as transformative and restorative justice. These are community-oriented approaches used for healing and is a non-punitive way of thinking and addressing violence. So transformative and restorative justice, they focus on conflict mediation. They It's about acknowledging survivors' needs, and it's about getting wrongdoers to address their harm and mm -hmm. work towards harm reduction and resolution. Yeah, and all of that is really important. And Part of what you're saying there that I really want to highlight for our listeners is that prison abolition is not the same thing as just total abolition of consequences, right? Mm -hmm. It's the abolition of this obsolete and violent mechanism of social control that serves no one except for the massively wealthy. Yeah. And also, these approaches are community-based. So instead of it being, you know, kind of like government institutions this is based in communities so i want to provide some examples of actual uh applications of transformative and restorative justice mm -hmm. so we can look towards indigenous tribes because they oftentimes practice restorative justice as a healing practice and some examples include um talking circles 
So talking circles is uh, approach and restorative practices, which embodies a uh, Navajo phrase uh, meaning something more like people talking together to reform relationships with each other and the universe. Uh, Youth circles underscore uh, interconnectedness and responsibility in their communities. And essentially what a talking circle is, is when individuals sit together in a circle and they take turns to express their thoughts on a particular issue. Mm-hmm. Usually it's maybe a form of harm that has been, that that's happened. And then in the circle, everyone has an equal place. There is no hierarchy. Oh, I was about to say, oh, so it's like graduate school, but <laughs> never mind, because hierarchy is definitely a thing. Uh, and oftentimes the talking piece is used and passed through, uh, around in the circle. Um, only the person... Uh, and using this piece, the only person who is allowed to talk is the person who is holding that piece. Mm-hmm. But this process requires active and deep listening. Yeah. And uh, it's used as a way to bring people together for the purpose of healing, teaching, listening, and learning. And, um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's just so much about so many things that we can learn from Native communities. Absolutely. And I think transformative justice is one of the most important ones. Yeah, and in Australia... Um, they also kind of practice short restorative justice. They um, bring together, like, for example, they bring together in New South Wales the person who was harmed, the person who was responsible, um, and any other individuals or community members affected by the crime. And they facilitate a structural dialogue about what happened, the impact, and what they should do moving forward. Yeah, uh, so, so they're making a plan. Mm-hmm. It's not just lock somebody up and throw away the key. It's yeah. addressing the past acknowledging the present and planning the future yeah and their practices are victim-led victim-oriented and they centered around the needs of the person harmed so there is still some kind of justice still happening it's just not based on punishment right and it's about restoring the harm that was committed and thinking about how the quote-unquote perpetrator can make things right with the victim yeah so carolyn why don't you talk to us about uh our next argument Yeah, so another really central tenet of abolitionist thought is that police harm our communities. And um, this is something that is going to rub a lot of people the wrong way. Just hearing that sentence, police Mm -hmm. harm our communities. Um, I know if any of my relatives are listening to this, they're probably (laughs) not happy with me. But hear me out. Hear me out. This doesn't mean that I don't respect police officers. This doesn't mean that I think that they're bad people. It means I think that there is a bad system in place that has a long historical precedent of being a bad system. And we're going to get into more detail with that in a minute. But first, I want to, you know, give some credit and outline the argument of those who oppose abolition and who uh, who feel that police do help our communities. And, um, you know, there's there the common idea and the purpose of police is supposedly that they protect us and that they stop crime. Um, And this is perpetuated through so much of our media, right? There's uh, what we call copaganda, which is exactly what it sounds like. It's propaganda to uphold and support the idea of policing. And this is things like the viral police lip syncing challenge. Um, When we saw officers kneeling with protesters after uh, the murder of George Floyd in 2020. And then, you know, there were so many reports that right after the photo was taken, mm-hmm. <laughs> those officers attacked those very protesters, right? They quote unquote dispersed the protest <sighs> with dispersed tear gas and rubber bullets. <laughs> right. We also see it in uh, 
like our fictional media stuff like Brooklyn Nine-Nine, Orange is the New Black, both of which are shows that I love. And I'm not here to say we shouldn't watch these shows, but I am here to say we should consume them critically. Um, And perhaps no piece of propaganda has been more harmful than Law and Order. (laughs) Um, It's been around forever. Yeah. Um, And I'm going to say, Aaron. Oh, no. Your favorite show. No. Criminal Minds. Oh, the FBI. The FBI. Um, right, but so it makes sense that we most for most white people, these shows are our interactions with police. This is our understanding of police, right? We think they're going to burst in at the last second, guns a-blazing, and take out the bad guy and protect us and all will be healed. And that's just not true. And communities of color know this and have been telling us this mm-hmm. for decades. <laughs> um, but, you know, so... People also will say, well, what about the murderers and rapists? And I think that is a valid question. And so, um, Aaron, can you help us move into the answer to that question? Yeah. So I'm going to play a soundbite from a panel that Trevor Noah was hosting with some people who were invested in police and prison, prison abolition. So let's talk a little bit about that. Michael, maybe you can help me. If... If there are no police, are, like, are, are you proposing or do you see a world with no police or is it just a different kind of people who enforce laws? What, what does that mean? We say abolish the police because we mean abolish the police, right? <laughs> there's, there's no mincing of language there. There's, no, there's nothing that we're trying to trick you on. Um, but the thing I think that I, where I've come down is just like, who's making the positive uh, argument for the police at this point? And I, and I say that because... Tell me something right now that the police are good at, other than whooping ass. Like, other than doing that, what are they good at? Um, they they don't prevent murders. They come in and they try to figure out who did the murder afterward. Mm-hmm. And they don't do any of the things that they're sent out to do. Like Patrice is telling us, it's saying, like, we want them to, like, solve homelessness. But it, what that means is just get the homeless people out of the street, right? We want them to solve these mental health crises. What that just means, kill the people that are having mental health breakdowns. None of the things that we, we, we ask them to do, they're good at. And so then we keep giving them lots and lots of money to do those things. Great. So the abolitionist response to kind of the first part of this point about police protecting us and stopping crime is that there's just copious evidence that police actually inflict harm. They don't make situations better in the vast majority of cases. And again, this doesn't mean I think police officers are bad people. I think a lot of people who really want to do good in their communities become police officers. I think that by doing that, they end up being part of a bad system. Mm -hmm. Um, It's the same way that I feel about the military. I have a lot of respect for people who choose to join the military. I think that the system of the United States military is deeply flawed. Yeah. Um, So ways that police inflict harm we know that police murder people of color at disproportionate rates if you have not been living under a rock the past (laughs) few years um this is something that you have probably heard about we know that police sexually harass and assault women and feminine presenting people Um, we know that police violently harm protesters whom they are supposedly there to protect as protesters are just American citizens practicing their constitutional rights. Mm-hmm. Um, and we also know that correctional officers, which is the police that work inside of prisons, they abuse prisoners physically, sexually, emotionally, spiritually, 
psychologically, any way you can think of. That happens all the time. And in terms of police stopping crime, you know, police show up after crimes are committed, right? It's not this image that we have of them kicking down the door and stopping the bad guy. You know, they show up after the fact. Um, we actually have some statistical data on this for you. Um, a study done and published in the New York Times shows that um, police only spend about 4% of their time responding to violent crime. And that's just responding to it at all, even after the fact. So even less of that is spent intervening during a violent crime as it is in process. Mm -hmm. um, and we also know that um, police do much more harm than good when it comes to domestic violence. Um, I believe the statistic is that 40% of police officers have uh, perpetuated domestic violence in their own homes. And when survivors contact police for help with um, their experience of domestic violence, they often report feeling uh, blamed, feeling like they were wasting the police's time, feeling gaslit, receiving the message that they deserved to experience violence or that it was their own fault in some kind of way. And so... I don't know about you, Aaron, but I would say that that is not a helpful intervention into crime. Absolutely not. And it's important to remember that in thinking about all of this, that crime rates and incarceration rates move independently of one another. So they're not correlated at all. So to put a pin in it, police and prisons do not keep us safe and they do not deter crime. Absolutely. And so um, we're going to play another quick soundbite. This is from John Oliver, and he's talking about the militarization of the police in the United States. Now, you might also notice in that photo that the police are troublingly dressed like they're about to launch an assault on Fallujah. Well, it turns out that that is no coincidence. Since 1996, in response to the war on drugs, the Department of Defense transferred $4.3 billion in military equipment to local and state police. After 9-11, the Department of Homeland Security made additional equipment available to local law enforcement through federal funds for terrorism prevention. That's right. And this has happened on such a scale that it's enabled small towns like Keene, New Hampshire, to apply for a Bearcat a military-grade armoured personnel truck, which they needed because, as their application argued, the terrorism threat is far-reaching and often unforeseen. <laughs> and cited as a possible target, their annual pumpkin festival. Yeah, so I don't really think that the police having tanks <laughs> protects me, right? Their job is supposed to be to protect and serve the citizens, but they're turning those military-grade weapons on the citizens. Mm -hmm. And, you know, police engage in asset seizure, which is um, when a crime has occurred or, uh, you know, someone's been evicted, things like that. Police can take property. They can take cars. They can take um, stolen goods. They can take drugs. They can take uh, illegal money, all of this stuff. And they can just keep it or they can sell it and pocket the money. So there's a huge incentive for them to... Mm, sounds like a crime to me. Tell that to the DEA. <laughs> <laughs> right, but so there's this huge incentive to, like, bust down on people. And um, police also have this protection called qualified immunity. You're rolling your eyes. Do yeah. you want to tell us what qualified immunity is? Yeah, so this... I actually don't know what it means. Uh, I, <laughs> I know what it means, but, like, I don't know, like, what it... It, I'm, it means that, like... Like, when they, when something happens, when they do some kind of, like, they have an issue of, like, misconduct that, like, they a lot of times are immune to 
the same kind of consequences that people who are not police. So like, I if I did the same kind of thing that police did, a police officer did, then he would most likely like get away with it, and I would not because he is a police officer. Yeah, they're not prosecuted for crimes in the same way that civilians are. Oh, that was a much more articulate way of saying what I just said. I'm, <laughs> I'm leaving yours in. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, no, I mean, I think both are helpful, you know, the long and short of it. And um, we also know that, like, things like poverty, homelessness, addiction, blackness, all of these things are criminalized and result in people arrested, incarcerated, murdered, Put, you know, life without parole, mm-hmm. given the death sentence, solitary confinement, all of these horrible things when, you know, poverty and homelessness are a financial issue yeah, and addiction is a medical issue yeah, and blackness is just not an issue, <laughs> <laughs> you know, like people just need help or in the case of blackness, they just need to be left alone. Um, but instead those things are dubbed crime and people are punished for these conditions outside of their control. And so we also see this playing out in what's known as the school to prison pipeline, which is a phrase you may have heard of, but if that's new to you, um, the school to prison pipeline just means that in particularly in low income schools and or schools that uh, most of the students are people of color, schools use or cities use funding to have police in the schools. And often this takes up this replaces the budget that other schools might use for counseling services. And so, you know, students have to go through a metal detector to go to class um, and things that might get a student in a primarily white, wealthier school, a detention or just a mm-hmm. talking to or a slap on the wrist, you know, gets these other kids handcuffed and arrested and put in cop cars. And um, we have lots of data that shows that every interaction with police statistically increases your chances of arrest and incarceration later in life by a lot. And so, you know, there's stories of kids as young as, you know, five years old in kindergarten getting arrested, booked, put in the cop car. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I just don't think that arresting five-year-olds makes us safer. No. So I'm going to also, I'm going to play another soundbite by The Root. We love a soundbite. Uh, we do. And I just want you to remember that policing has a history and that history is a history of white supremacy because it came from slave patrolling and then it went to convict leasing and then it went to black codes and then it went to policing Mm -hmm. like we know it now so it's important to remember when we're talking about dismantling policing it is an institution of white supremacy because slavery is an institution of white supremacy so i'll play that clip now Those who did survive the horrors of the slave trade and were brought to what would become the U.S. were also subjected to the first form of organized policing in the South, known as the Slave Patrol. In case you missed it, the Slave Patrol and slave catchers were the first form of organized police in the South. These watching-ass white folks first emerged in the colony of Carolina in the early 1700s and set the tone for policing as we know it. The slave patrol kept tabs on the whereabouts of the enslaved. And that meant if black men and women were off a plantation, then the slave patrol could demand to see a slave badge noting their occupation. Slave patrol could stop and search whomever's belongings just because. I wonder who that sounds like. Then there was the slave catchers. That role is pretty self-explanatory. 
slave catchers chased and returned runaways. They also intentionally scared the bejesus out of the enslaved to instill a sense of fear and prevent revolts. There was some overlap between the role of the slave catcher and the slave patrol, but together they enforced the idea that black people were second-class citizens and that white people were the authority. And organized police departments, they enforced this racial hierarchy too. In South Carolina, for example, by 1837, there were dozens of officers in the Charleston Police Department whose jobs were essentially to monitor the enslaved. And though slavery was abolished after the Civil War, the spirit of tracking and policing black folks lived on. Yeah, thanks for that, Erin. And you know, if you're not familiar with things like black codes and convict leasing and slave patrols, um, those are all worth looking into more. But they're basically just taking the same system of enslavement and putting a new name on it and creating loopholes through things like Jim Crow laws and the 13th Amendment and uh, now, you know, our modern carceral system to continue to enact the same um, racial dynamics and class dynamics of enslavement under different names. And so the final part of this point was this question of what about the murderers and rapists? And that's a legitimate question. And so mm -hmm. one thing I want to name is that murder is way less common than, you know, criminal minds and <laughs> law and order lead us to believe. And the vast majority of rapists are not incarcerated. Yeah. Um, and if we're trying to reduce murder and rape in our society through incarceration, keep in mind that murder and rape are incredibly common inside of prisons. Yeah. So by sending people there, we're not reducing these things. And, you know, these are <laughs> these things are still happening with the system we have in place. So it, clearly the system we have in place is not stopping people from murdering and raping. Right. So we need to try something else. And um, again, we want to stress that abolition is not about completely getting rid of all consequences for wrongful actions in our society. And there may even be cases where people need to be detained for their own good or for the good of others. However, in an abolitionist world, this kind of detention, you know, detaining people would not be punitive. The purpose of it wouldn't be punishment, humiliation, dehumanization, all of those things. It would instead be restorative and maintain the offender's humanity and potential to do good in society rather than locking them up and throwing away the key or sentencing them to death, both of which basically just leave people to rot um and we pay for that with our tax dollars and so uh pic abolition also requires the abolition of harmful structures like rape culture gun culture and toxic masculinity remember abolition is a complex set of solutions to society's wicked problems it's not just saying let's take a wrecking ball to all the prisons and call it a day yeah, so we'll get into our next idea, which is addressing the root causes of crime at a community level instead of police uh, and prisons. So because we have a punitive criminal justice system, it's based on punishment, it's because we are viewing crime as a moral issue. Mm -hmm. And we view crime as being uh, something that's caused by people who are inherently bad or by people who are making bad choices and not by different structural systems in our country that lead to people to have to do whatever it is that they have to do. So we can kind of think about this in the sense that, um, and the argument of like bad neighborhoods, they need higher policing presence mm -hmm. uh, and that those police need more resources. 
uh, to further police those, quote, bad neighborhoods. And they need more of our tax dollars to help increase police budgets for more policing. Uh, a recent instance of this is after the mass shooting that happened in the Brooklyn subway. Yeah. The mayor of New York City, Eric Adams, called for even more policing, even though there were already police in the subway system and they did not catch and stop the mass shooter. Yeah, I actually saw um, a trend on social media after that call for increased police budget that was, number one, pointing out that the current NYPD budget is larger than the budget for Mm -hmm. the entire Ukrainian military. And uh, so if with that budget they're not able to stop this, it doesn't (laughs) seem like budgeting is the issue. And um, secondly, the trend was to take photos of the officers in subway stations on their phones. Playing Candy Crush. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Crushing candy and stopping people for fare evasion to save the city, you know, $3 or whatever, but can't be bothered to intervene in a mass shooting. Yeah. Uh, another common argument is that we need prisons to punish the bad people and keep them from reoffending. This issue is never contextualized in an instance where... We think about our criminal justice system being punitive. So let's just say that a police officer murders a black person. Never. I know. In America. An outlandish idea. (laughs) And they are actually, you know, sent to trial and they're actually sentenced to go to prison for that crime. Usually a lot of times what happens, and you can read about this more in Derricka Parnell's book, Becoming Abolitionist. Mm, highly that, recommend. I do too. That they will go to prison, and in prison there are already a lot of kind of white supremacist groups in prisons. Mm-hmm. And they will be viewed as a martyr in their cause, and white supremacists will become even more emboldened. And when they are released from prison, they're enacting a different kind of violence and harm in our society. So there is no real actual... Uh, stopping people from reoffending because then they resort to neo-Nazism and they're harming other communities of colors and stuff like that. Yep. And lastly is that we can't get rid of prisons without some kind of replacement. And this is just an argument that people are not really thinking about abolition as something more than just abolish police, the end. Yeah. And, you know, I think that that is a valid concern Mm -hmm. and i think that is an area where the abolitionist movement needs to improve because i don't think the movement has done a very good job of explaining that abolition is a creative process it's Mm -hmm. not a destructive process because when we think about abolishing something we think about destroy it tear it down um and so if you said like let's just completely get rid of our legal system the end you know mm-hmm. yeah i would have a lot of questions about that movement <laughs> as well and that's why i was reluctant to you know say that i was an abolitionist mm-hmm. for a long time um but as i got more into it i learned that um the abolitionist answer to this is that um a much much better way to allocate our community resources meaning skills and talents tax dollars facilities um all kinds of things like that Uh, is by funding social services, particularly those related to education, housing, healthcare, and gun control. Because when people's needs are met, they're much much less likely to have to resort to crime to get by. I don't know about you, Erin, but when I wake up in the morning, I don't really think to myself, like, wow, you know what would be so fun is to go steal a bunch of stuff, but gosh darn it, I don't want to go to prison. Yeah. That's not the reason that I don't commit crimes. I don't steal stuff because I don't have to. Mm-hmm. 
And, you know, most American adults have committed a crime at some point in their life, whether or not they're incarcerated for it. And, uh, you know, it's probably something minor, you know, maybe you consumed illicit substances underage, not mm-hmm. us, but somebody. Yeah. Right. I've heard rumors. <laughs> um, <laughs> I actually didn't cause I was a big weenie, but, um, <laughs> you know, maybe when you use the self-checkout at the grocery store, your receipt reflects far more bananas than are present in your cart. Maybe you don't click that you actually use any of the bags and you click, I use zero bags because I'm not paying five cents for a plastic bag. <laughs> hypothetically. That was me admitting to a crime. <laughs> I, I said hypothetically. Yeah. <laughs> Aaron. <laughs> right. But these things happen because needs are not met. Financial needs are not met. Uh, needs for groceries are not met. Things like that. Right. It's not because you know, you're a bad person or you just like doing bad things. Um, We know that the safest neighborhoods are the ones with the most resources. Mm -hmm. It's not just so happens that white people do less crime. It's because white neighborhoods tend to be more well-resourced and they actually have the lowest police presence. It's not that police are keeping these neighborhoods safe. It's that the people's needs are met and so they're not committing crimes. And because... The police are not there to criminalize their behavior in the same way that they are in lower income and uh, neighborhoods of color. So what I'm getting at here, Aaron, is that capitalism is actually at the root of the vast majority of crimes. Absolutely. And so we also have to remember that the vast majority of criminals are not Ted Bundy. (gasps) Right. I know as much as I love true crime, listening to the podcast, watching documentaries, all this stuff. That's like 0.001% of incarcerated people, right? So even if we believed that the Ted Bundys of the world deserve harsh punishment or deserve the death penalty or you know, deserve a punitive response, that wouldn't make a good case for designing our entire system around them. There's over 2 million Americans currently incarcerated and the majority of them, not serial killers. Mm-hmm. The majority of them committed nonviolent drug offenses. So why are we treating them? like Ted Bundy. <laughs> and uh, so abolitionist Mary McCaba actually has a really helpful metaphor here that helps us understand this. So even if you think, you know, Ted Bundy deserves the current system, right? The current PIC, the PIC may be a hammer, but the vast majority of the world's problems are not nails, right? Think about all the damage you could do if you took a hammer to every problem in your life. That's, that's how our system is currently functioning. And abolition says, Hey, Let's see what else is in our toolbox. Yeah. So I want to talk a little bit more about needs not being met and that kind of being the pathway to incarceration and policing. So we're going to talk about healthcare and education. So there are a lot of countries that have universal healthcare and free education, and they see reduced crime rates, such as Australia, Ireland, France, and Germany. The Brookings Institute actually have a study and they released saying that new evidence uh that access to health care reduces crime so if you think about addiction that is a mental health issue right so that means that they are struggling with something and they have a need that needs to be met which is some form of like mental health care and treatment and that is a lot for a lot of people really hard to access because of our current 
capitalist healthcare system. Mm-hmm. So, Even if you have insurance, right? Yeah. You pay so much money every month for insurance, and then you go to the doctor and you pay a whole bunch more money. So, like, what's that for? Yeah, I can't even afford a therapist right now. So, mm-hmm. and you need uh, one. <laughs> <laughs> so, when when they and the fact that we have, for example, a lot of drugs are criminalized. So they are arrested and then they are incarcerated for like addiction. And in prison, they might have maybe some form of treatment, but usually it's not even to the extent that you would get like outside mm. of incarceration. So, well, and people are ignored and denied care yeah. all the time. Like, so many people who leave prison have like really severe health issues that haven't been addressed. Yeah. And an abolitionist uh, kind of argument would be let's address this before they are even criminalized and incarcerated mm-hmm. let's provide access to health care so that people instead of criminalizing their addiction we should be helping uh treat their addiction and another example is education so a lot of studies have also said that um youth are more likely to be arrested or resort to crime if they like leave like school early so there mm-hmm. are studies saying that we should be working towards uh keeping children inside of education programs a lot longer to reduce crime and reduce them from being arrested and placed in our in our car our um carceral system yeah uh even in maryland they have a bunch of programs that are supposed to be helping uh, their communities and reducing crime by providing access to education. The Baltimore uh, uh, Community College, um, they provide free tuition, tuition-free education, and regardless of your GPA or your income, and this is an access to education that can help, you know, let people meet their needs. Um, and they have a bunch of studies uh, in Baltimore that are speaking towards how more access to free education can help reduce crime and reducing crime can obviously stop people from being incarcerated. Yeah. And um, there's actually examples of different kinds of responses to issues other than sending armed police officers going on in the United States right now. So oh, really? Oh, yeah. <laughs> this is going to blow your mind, Aaron. Oh. Are you ready? Yes. Okay. <laughs> so um, in Eugene, Oregon, there is a program called CAHOOTS, which stands for Crisis Assistance Helping Out on the Streets. And this is a mobile crisis intervention program that uh, uses city vehicles. So they are you know easy to spot. And it's been going on for about 30 years. Um, and they provide support to the city by taking on social service types of calls Um, including crisis counseling. So um, they will help people who are intoxicated, mentally ill, disoriented, or in need of other non-emergency medical care get connected to the services that they need without introducing violence into the situation. And, you know, these are trained specialists who deal with this. Um, There's a similar program in Denver that's called STAR, and that stands for Support Team Assisted Response. And... um, you know, same idea as CAHOOTS. They have um, EMTs and behavioral health clinicians who respond to crises related to mental health, poverty, homelessness, and substance abuse. And you can actually reach them by dialing 911. So you don't even have to learn anything different. The city just manages the problem differently. 
So again, you know, the PIC is a wicked problem. There's no one size fits all solution. There's no one to one comparison with another country because it's so complex and connected to mitigating cultural factors like access to healthcare, racial diversity, GDP, population density, gun control policies, and all this kind of stuff. But we do want to conclude with some final thoughts here about um, abolition and design. So we want to remind you that abolition is a communal and constructive process that is historically informed, presently enacted, and future-oriented. The abolitionist I mentioned earlier, Miriam Kava, has um, a piece called Hope is a Discipline. And uh, I think that it's so important to remember hope when we think about abolition because abolition is a joyful process. It's a future-oriented process, and abolition radically imagines and demands and creates a future that's better and a future that's just and a future that is safe and equitable. Yeah, and to stick with that concept of hope, we know that a lot of times abolition is thought of as a praxis, so theory and practice. So hope and that is hope is grounded in that uh, radical abolitionist imagining for like a better, more equitable, just society. But that's not like the end of it. And that's why we're kind of talking about this in the spirit of design. So we're not only thinking about what could our future be like without prisons and police, but we're actually wanting to enact change and design a better future that is free of police and prisons. Mm-hmm. So we, we want to end this podcast by also providing you an abolitionist resource list. And the reason we have this list is because even though we are both PhD students and we are currently in the academy and this project is for a graduate seminar course, we realized that not only is abolition a community practice, but we are also interested in uh, kind of working with this movement as a kind of like public facing issue. So this is a public facing project. It's not just for the academy. We actually know that abolition exists outside of the academy. So this is supposed to be for not just academics. So these this resource list has a bunch of different kind of uh, guides and toolkits for people who are community organizers from, you know, just starting up trying to uh, build a better future in your own communities to grassroots projects and other different kinds of like uh, practices. So I'll just read a few off for you. Uh, we have one from uh, Advancement Project. It's uh, a resource guide called We Came to Learn, a call to action for police-free schools, action kit. Community Justice Exchange has one called Abolitionist Principles and Campaign Strategies for Prosecutor Organizing. They have another one called An Organizer's Guide to Confronting Pre-Trial Risk Assessment Tools and Decarceration Campaigns. Community Resource Hub has one called How to Take Back the Budget, a guide to reviewing and changing the police budget in your community. And then I'll just read one more, which is uh, from... uh, Prison Culture, which is cop-free bystander intervention, a video resource. So hopefully these are going to be helpful for people who are trying to actually enact abolition in their own communities to build a prison and police-free society. Thanks so much for listening to Designing Abolition. Thank you to Dr. Scott Weibel for allowing us to turn in this podcast as our final project for his course. Also, thank you to the Terrapin Learning Commons Tech Desk 
for allowing us to use this incredible podcasting lab that makes our voices sound so crisp. So Designing Abolition was written, recorded, produced, and edited by Carolyn Robbins and Aaron Green. That's us, bitch. <laughs>